I have to say before I start that I'm both excited and terrified about this particular class. I think uh, I've been much more comfortable talking about the material we've spoken about up until now, uh, which hasn't been uncontroversial, but <coughs> at least has been within some pretty specific boundaries. This one, um, the title of the class being is Social Justice Halakha, a farce, is or has been for me moving outside of my comfort zone. Um, and I think that's actually part of the point of the classes I'm gonna get to in a second. Um, so the, the, the question for today um, is how do we think about the use of halakhic texts, and we'll have to think about what, those, what that means, halakhic texts, how do we think about their use for purposes of speaking about um, proper wages, proper working conditions, um, issues of immigration, any issue that might uh, you might deal with in a social policy setting, what I'm calling here social justice for short, we can talk about exactly what that means. Um, how do you talk about that in a way that is meaningful and in a way that integrates with the rest of uh, the halakha conversation and also the rest of the Jews who are observing that halakha? Um, so to, to, to kind of begin the class, we have to start up by saying, um, this kind of comes out of the discussion we had last class on different kinds of halakhic writing. So halakha about sex versus halakha about Shabbat. There is a kind of understanding that I was trying to argue about that uh, different areas of halakha have different kind of implicit rules about how observance works, the way arguments are made. Um, and what I want to move us towards is that social justice halakha also has its own rules that we need to kind of uncover. But before we get to that, so what are the possible relationships between halakha and ethics? Um, I've given you this list of Venn diagrams, uh, which I think covers all the possibilities that there are uh, for the relationship between the two. Um, so the first one of these is that they are exactly the same. Everything that is ethics is halakha, everything that is halakha is ethics. I think this is a pretty hard one, you can disagree, but I think this is a pretty hard one to argue for. Um, first of all, that would mean that everyone is doing halakha even if they're not Jewish, um, which I don't think anybody was making the argument for, but also there are certain elements of halakha which like probably have nothing to do with ethics. I think the notion of an eruv, that there is like a kind of ritual boundary around uh, an, uh, an area where people live, has nothing at all to do with ethics. Or if it does, then the, the way it does eludes me. Um, so we can move past that one. The second possibility is that halakha and ethics have nothing to do with each other. They are entirely separate fields. Um, this actually is worth thinking about uh, in reference to something that Josh Rosenberg raised um, way back at the beginning of the class, which is that do, if I'm beholden to halakha, does that mean I'm not beholden to ethics? Um, are the two mutually exclusive? This might suggest, no, halakha and ethics are actually two different fields. Um, and ethics is just, it's, it's not non, sorry, halakha is not an unethical, but it's certainly um, aethical. Um, one proponent of this position, I'm not sure there are so many, uh, is Yeshua Halebu, it's a source we've looked at before, um, he says, quite specifically, um, on page two, source number two, morality can be neither Jewish nor non-Jewish, neither religious or irreligious. Morality is morality. The attempt to fuse morality and religion is not a happy one. Morality is guidance of man's will in accordance with his no knowledge of nature and of himself, or in accordance with what the individual considers his duty towards man as an end in himself, differs radically from religious consciousness or religious feeling. So they're just, they're, there's no relationship, and we shouldn't try to make a relationship. Jews are kind of... Um, uh, have, a, have a relationship, have a responsibility towards halakha and not morality. Um, now, this is also a difficult position to hold. One of the ways we know it's difficult is that even he had trouble holding it. Um, if you see on the next page, he already 
tries to grapple with, well, then what does it mean for halakha to change? What is it changing in response to? Um, he, in his own life, struggled specifically with issues of halakha and egalitarianism, actually, uh, wanting to understand how the two fit together. So this is um, another difficult option. The remaining three are worth thinking about, and I think we have more support for them. Um, so the third one is to suggest that halakha is a subset of ethics. Um, there's a lot of ways you might find this approach. One way is to suggest, uh, for, for those people who are proponents of the idea that there are multiple right paths in the universe, that um, Judaism is one correct path among many, might suggest that halakha is one more way of living a moral and ethical life. Um, so if you held that viewpoint, then this would be a way of thinking about what halakha is. It's kind of a subset. Um, you might also find it in sources um, such as source number three, this is a tshuva by uh, Rabbi Mordechai Yaakov Greish of Zurich, who I, I'm sorry to say I know very little about, especially because this is such an interesting um, paragraph. He's talking about um, what do you do with the, with the prohibition of, of usury in Judaism? And as you may know, that Judaism does not allow lending at interest, um, certainly not lending at interest to other Jews. So, but all of commerce nowadays is based on that. So what do you do? How do you get around that? And he says, pretty amazingly, in source number three, I have mentioned this to you in order that you be aware that it is a great mitzvah to seek out lenient counsel in order to lighten the prohibition on contemporary financial matters, practices, so that transactions not be hampered by the prohibition of rebeat or rebeat light activity. Rebeat is usury. At times, one should do this even by forcing an argument based on a far-fetched loophole or by relying on lenient jurists according to the standard rules of interpretation, of course. This then is my apology to my critics, for at several points in this treatise, I have sought out and relied upon lenient opinions. So he's saying, I've, he's saying in a way that, that very few rabbis do out loud, I'm going out of my way to find lenient opinions because I'm trying to help people. I want people to, to be able to enact commerce. Um, as a result, I'm going with the most lenient positions that I can find. Um, because presumably, there is halakha, but there's something else outside of halakha. Ethics, he might call it Torah. We could talk about, it's a separate question about what the relationship is between Torah and ethics. I'm speaking about halakha specifically here. Uh, by the way, if you have questions, just stop me at any point. Um, so this is another way of thinking about the relationship. Um, a fourth possibility is the exact... How does, this, yeah, go ahead. how does this illustrate possibility number three? So I think, so I was trying to find a good source for it. This is a suggestion that we are using halakha, but ultimately we're using halakha for extra halakha purposes. Um, meaning there is this larger um, ethic that halakha on its own is not going to help us recognize um, of having people be able to um, conduct financial transactions um, because that presumably helps them live a better, to a better standard of living. But halakha is not going to get you there itself. There is some other ethic that is motivated, motivated and is outside of it and uh, can kind of conduct it in some way. Uh, there's another there's another shuvah, which might actually be a better one, uh, by a, a scholar named the Dorvi. I can't remember his his uh, actual name right now, um, but the he's asked the question of, is it possible to eat the fetus of a cow fetus which has not been slaughtered, because and this is the halakhic argument. Um, technically, if you slaughter a mother cow, the fetus is considered a part of the mother and it's considered slaughtered itself. So this animal can be walking around alive, but from a halakhic perspective, it's considered dead. It's considered not only that, but you can, you can eat it. You can tear off a limb, theoretically, and eat that. Um, so he's asked, can you, can you actually do this? And he says, there are some things that are so uh, fundamentally abhorrent that even the Torah doesn't, need to, doesn't even need to tell you about them. Of course it's a problem. 
So halakha is kind of there to tell you about problems that um, are less obvious. The more obvious ones don't even enter into the halakha conversation. Um, so this would be answers along those lines. Um, you might also find support for this in statements in the Gemara, like that there is a, um, like lifni mishor hadin, there is a going beyond letter of the law. And that is recognized within halakhic conversation as kind of like we're using an extra halakhic principle to, to solve this particular issue. Um, Can you also argue that each of those examples that you gave also um, are examples of number four? Right? That there are certain areas of halakha where there, where it's especially important to emphasize ethics? Um, yes, I think you could. I think the two uh, go together very much. Um, part of the reason why I don't think either three or four is sufficient is because of that, because you can view it in multiple ways. Um, and because I'm not sure that Rabbi Breish is trying to put out a full-fledged position about, hal about halakha being subservient to this larger ethical system. He doesn't flesh that out. He uses it within a halakha context. Um, but not to get ahead of ourselves, number four, which is on page four, is the notion that <coughs> halakha is a, is a larger framework um, and, that, and that ethics works within it. Um, so Maimonides, of course, recognizes that there are elements of halakha which are for the purpose of doing good. Um, there is a whole subset of halakha, of mitzvot, that are there because they help the world, make the world a better place. They help reduce crime, they help reduce poverty, things like that. But not all of halakha is about ethics. In fact, the ultimate purpose of halakha, as he says at the very beginning, the law as a whole aims at two things, the welfare, welfare of the soul and the welfare of the body. So the welfare of the body we can understand as being roughly ethics. The welfare of the soul is some kind of, some kind of knowledge of God. Um, that's not simply about uh, ethics. He doesn't construe that as simply being about ethics. Um, and in fact, the, the point of ethics is that you actually need to make the world a better place in order for knowledge of God to be achieved, because it's a distraction. It's a distraction, people are getting murdered all the time, and you're trying to get to know God. Um, so you have to kind of get rid of those distractions before you can, you can know God. Um, so these are the, the four positions that we have so far. What I want to argue um, that, uh, what I want to argue is actually the case is that in reality, halakha as it is lived um, is number five. <coughs> that is to say, there are areas of halakha that are also, also elements of ethics. There are areas, elements of halakha which have nothing to do with ethics. Erev probably has nothing to do with ethics. There are also, unfortunately, areas of ethics that are non halakha, that lie outside of the halakhic system. But even though this is actually the reality, um, because of the constraints of the halakhic system, the formal constraints, um, what it means to write according and, and have authority according to halakhic boundaries. Um, we should always strive towards bringing ethics into halakha so that ideally we have a situation um, in which there's <coughs> no ethics that is outside of halakha. Um, now, how does that work? How do you actually achieve that? What I want, so what I want to do is try to look at some solutions to this. This is very much a contemporary um, topic um, because in, in the 20th century, there are all these attempts to, to bring halakhic terminology to places where it was not normally used. Um, so let me just give you a few examples. There are, of course, um, those who have always um, attempted to use halakhic terminology to talk about being a good person, a good citizen, in fact, uh, being helpful to your neighbors. Uh, these are these we have already. But being more specific, you now have people and organizations which are talking about um, specific rules for caring for the sick. How much money do you need to give? How does that relate to the federal taxes that you pay? Um, 
do you have to do army service if you live in Israel? Um, do you, should you support microloans? Um, getting like, very specific, uh, should you support you know, X social cause? Um, should you worry about workers' conditions? Mm -hmm. should, you, should you worry about public access to buildings? Um, and then even more globally, thinking about environmental rights, thinking about animal rights, um, thinking about uh, universal health care. These are all areas where people have tried to bring halakhic conversations uh, to bear on these topics in, in ways that they have not previously been, um, been brought to bear. I do want to say, though, there's a separate set of areas where, which you can also think about as social justice halakha, where there is a halakhic conversation that's actually much more technical. Um, these are areas where halakha has a lot to say, but it needs to be brought um, to bear on the realities of the 20th century. So I'll give you an example. The agunah problem can be thought about as a social justice problem. The agunah problem is, in Jewish law, um, it's the man's prerogative to initiate divorce, and you can't be forced into it. Um, this creates situations where there are women who want to uh, get remarried after being estranged from their husbands, but cannot do so because their husbands simply refuse. There are all sorts of people who have attempted to do, create halakh answers to this problem. I would argue that's in a separate category. Um, because there what we're really doing is trying to fiddle with sources that already exist as opposed to moving into new and uncharted territory. Um, we're trying to grapple with the laws as they exist already. In fact, some of the discussion we've had in the past few classes fall into the same category. So talking about women counting their minyan is in a way trying to bring halakhic sources that already exist to bear with present realities. The same would be true for in certain, uh, certain Jewish communities, not covering up sexual abuse, um, dealing with mental health problems in a, in a serious and a rigorous way, also all kinds of questions relating to bioethics and medical ethics. These are areas where there already exists halakha and there's lots of very technical writing available. Um, so this is a separate category because this is what I would argue is a kind of, this is an attempt to repair or update existing laws as opposed to creating new law. Okay. Um, I'd also say, just to relate back to the thing I said at the beginning of the class, the reason that I personally feel more comfortable with this other area, this fixing injustice as opposed to kind of forging halakha into new frontiers, um, is that it's easier. It's more comfortable. It's less unsettling to fiddle with sources that already exist than to kind of think of new ways to use existing sources in areas that they were never used before. Um, that, I think, is going to relate to why there is a divide often between the people, between Jewish people whose kind of Jewish identity is wrapped up in social justice issues and people whose Jewish identity is wrapped up in halakhic issues and halakhic observance. It's not always the case that the two are separated, but it's often the case that the two are mutually exclusive. And that's, I think, one of the problems that we have to uh, think about today. Um, questions before I go forward? OK. So I've been talking so far about social justice halakha. Um, why not talk about social justice Torah? Which is kind of an easier way to solve the problem. Certainly, the Torah has elements which relate to justice. It's not hard to find them. There are all kinds of statements in the Torah and Talmud that uh, have some bearing on uh, living a meaningful and uh, a meaningful life that involves giving to others, that involves being a productive member of society, that involves taking a lot. That's fine. That's, that's easier to see. There are reasons, though, to think about social justice halakha specifically. One of them is that there is a notion of commandedness that exists in halakha, which doesn't exist elsewhere. The Torah is a word that's used in multiple contexts. 
Um, it can often be used in very vague ways to mean something that is Jewish in some sense, but it lacks this kind of rigor. Um, the fact that it lacks that rigor often means in reality that social justice Torah is not the same thing as social justice halakha. The people who are engaged in social justice Torah are actually advocating in the name of Torah, but they're not engaged in any kind of halakha conversation. Um, in fact, it can be argued, and people have made these arguments, that social justice Torah is actually just, it's, it's using uh, halakhic sources in ways that were never intended to be used. Um, and it's masquerading around and <coughs> promotes social issues, but actually doesn't respect the real meaning of the sources. Um, so part of it is that. Part of it is that there is a wealth of learning and tradition to, uh, to be gained if social justice is connected to halakha specifically. There's all these texts, there's this whole mode of learning that is connected to um, halakha which you don't get access to if you're simply looking at it through Torah, um, through the lens of Torah more vaguely. Um, and it's important that social justice be part of the Beit Midrash, and it actually to be part of the same Beit Midrash as you're learning Gemara in, as you're learning all kinds of other things in, as opposed to some other specifically social justice form. Um, they two really need to be merged. Um, so how do you do that and why hasn't been done so far? So let me throw it out to you. What do you think some problems are if you uh, with social justice halakha. We've kind of alluded to some, to some of them already. But when you've heard social justice halakha uh, before, or social justice employed using um, text from the Torah, what are some problems you've had with them? Maybe I'm just alone in this. Maybe no one's had any problems except for me. It always seems forced. Like, yeah. in the sense that, like, um, somehow conveniently the halacha implies like a certain like political or social position that like aligns with what I want you right. know so there's something um, inauthentic about social justice halacha often that is I think that is that is not helped by the fact that a lot of social justice halacha appears in persuasive formats. So it's not just, you know, you pick a book off the shelf and it says, oh, like it looks here like I have to have a certain minimum wage. It's a rabbi standing at the pulpit and he's saying, here to my community, this is something that you need to think about. Or you see an article or an editorial in a newspaper that suggests these things. They're written in, in uh, persuasive and advocacy formats and that, that don't try to hide the fact that they are trying to push for a specific position. Um, so that certainly doesn't, that certainly promotes this vision of this as being motivated by an agenda. Um, yeah? Sorry, can you give an example uh, that really highlights the distinction between um, between social justice Torah and social justice halakha, maybe like, involving the same principle, or um, I don't know, like the same social group or something to really demonstrate the how we should be distinguishing between them? So part of what I'm trying to argue is actually that um, a lot of the um, <coughs> the essays, the literature that's been written by Jews about issues of social justice using Jewish sources, we could frame it as social justice Torah, mm -hmm. or we could frame it as social justice halacha. We could frame it as being some, something separate from halacha, or as being included in it, and I want to say it should be included in it. So it's, they're not actually different sets of, of texts. It's the same literature, um, and I'm trying to bring it into the halachic conversation as opposed to the larger Torah conversation. Right, so can you just give an example of 
how that would be played out as social justice Torah versus social justice halakha. Like, um, I don't know, like taking care of the, um, you know, Yatom Almana or something. Okay, like, so let's look at source number six, actually, and maybe that will help out with this. I'll use this as a kind of example. Um, AJS, sorry, AJWS, um, American Jewish World Service, has for a number of years um, had weekly columns where they, where someone writes a short Devar Torah that has a social justice message, which is already something, going back to Ezra's point, a little bit striking, right? It's someone who's both charged to present a piece of Torah, but charged also with directing that Torah towards a, a message that is of relevance to um, an issue of social concern somewhere in the world. Um, and specifically one that accords with AJWS's agenda. Even more so, yeah. Right. It's, so it's not just something everyone can agree upon. Yeah. So I brought you one that's about Tezriya Mitzora, so you can also bring this to your dinner tables next week, <laughs> if you so desire. This is from a few years ago. Um, so the person in this arg- article is, is in this Torah is talking about um, the process by which a person with Tzorat, some kind of skin disease, um, is cleansed from that disease. And the fact that they go out of the camp and they have this ritual interaction with a Kohen, uh, a priest, and through that interaction, he is cleansed. And so if you see the underlying passage on page number five, it says, in the biblical imagination, the Mitzorah, this is the person with Tzorat, with this disease, occupied a space similar to that of the leper in the popular imagination, one who is isolated and cast out for a shameful affliction. <coughs> And to the next passage that is underlined, against this backdrop, the ritual for the Mitzorah's purification is jarring in the physical intimacy it demands between the priest and the afflicted. So whereas you might think that a person with a skin disease is gonna be treated as contagious and kind of say, whoa, you have to get out of this camp, you can't, you know, we have to leave you alone. In fact, the purification process actually demands a kind of closeness, a kind of intimacy between the person who needs to be purified and the purifier. After initial rites that permit the Mitzorah to re-enter encampment, the Mitzorah offers sacrifices. From these, the priests take some of the blood of the guilt offering and puts it on the ridge of the right ear of him who is being cleansed. They touch each other, the priest and the Mitzorah, and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big tone of the right foot. Okay, so this is the, this is the setup. Now, how, what is the relevance of this piece? The bottom of the page, just as these rituals confer divine authority to priests and kings, so too do they confer re-acceptance of the Mitzorah into the divine community. Indeed, he is not begrudgingly allowed back in, but he is honored through the same choreography that dignifies Israel's priests and kings. So there's actually some similarity between the way you purify a Mitzorah and the way that you anoint a future king of Israel. And then here's the, here's the punchline. The restoration of dignity and community at this ritual's heart has palpable ramifications for our response to the global HIV-AIDS crisis. While there certainly has been much progress on this front, the isolation of people living with HIV-AIDS remains a trenchant obstacle decades into the pandemic. Individuals are still abandoned by family and community, left to suffer alone. The ill resist testing because of the stigma the diagnosis brings. And as the pandemic spreads, it imports its shame and isolation anew. And then just to finish it up, on page number six, just as the priest restored the Mitzorah's dignity through his anointing touch, we have a duty to restore dignity and community to people living with HIV-AIDS, to provide them with more than medicine and clinical treatment, Critical in this effort are those grassroots projects throughout the world, such as those supported by HAWS, that fight discrimination and educate communities to reduce isolation and stigma. So, to go back to Yael's question, is this Torah, is this halacha? The, the source it's using is, technically speaking, a halacha source. 
it speaks about a matter of law, which can be codified, which you'll find in later works, and is fleshed out in later works. But the way in which it's using, you could argue, is halachic. It's saying, just as we treat the mitzorah with this kind of intimacy, so too, um, all kinds of afflictions should not be, we, we have a, a prohibition on treating um, HIV AIDS and other similar afflictions um, by shunning those people. We actually, we actually have a responsibility, a duty to um, be close to those people, uh, specifically at those moments, and that's part of the purification. Um, that would be halakhic argument. You could also see this as just being Torah more generally, which is to say, yes, it is a halakhic text, but it's not actually what's more important here. What's more important is that this is a source which highlights the Torah's general concern with uh, treating sickness uh, with intimacy, by responding to sickness with intimacy. Outside of any halakhic framework, you'll never find it in a code or anything like that. You'll never find any, any code that says something like, you know, uh, every time there's a sickness, say that. Um, every time there's a sickness, that you have to respond to it by being close to that person. Uh, but nonetheless, I will now take this this principle which I have found in the Torah and apply it to HIV/AIDS. That that would be, is that is that difference clear? Um, so, is it fair to say that the distinction that you're making is that in in a social justice halacha reading, it is obligatory to do a very specific thing, whereas with social justice Torah, one should generally apply this principle? So that, I think that's part of it. Part of it is just a question of the literature, um, is that, is this an argument which, if it were, maybe put it like this, if this argument were written a little bit less flowery, the, the reference to AGS were taken out, it was translated into Hebrew, it was given a little bit of a few rabbinic flourishes, is this essentially a halakhic argument on the question of, how should we act according to, to uh, towards people who have HIV/AIDS? Could you dress it up like that, or is this something else entirely? Does this fit into categories of halachic conversation or not? You're not convinced. You're not clear about the, the difference. I'm not clear about what would make it halacha. I mean, like if it, if there were a specific proof text that were used and that you know, I don't know. Okay, uh, so let's table it. Maybe it'll become clearer. Well, maybe I'll ask you. Strikes me as like a stylistic thing. Mm -hmm. If you use the halachic style, then it can be accepted as halacha. It's like this doesn't, this just doesn't sound like halacha. Like it's never like any tshuva that I've ever read before. So, so I wouldn't be able to think about it in the same way. What and makes it not like uh, anything you've Just read meaning that, that end, the part that you underline at the end, like I don't know of any rabbinic source that would write like that. Mm -hmm. um, so. So yes, yeah, so that that it just that's it sounds like Torah instead of halacha. I think I, that's the difference that I'm getting out of it. Right. Okay. Even though it's based off of a text, right. which is a halachic text, which right. is part of the Torah's legal system. However, I would I would assume that a halachic text would go into more detail about how this phrase, like this idea, has been used throughout the rest of halachic literature. Great. You would so Wonderful. So you're getting to a second issue I think that people often have with social justice Torah. The first one, like as I said, was inauthenticity. The second question is about a kind of um, insufficiency. That yes, there are halakhic texts that are used, but only the ones that are helpful, not all of them. They're not given in a rigorous format. Um, they're not presented in the way that you might expect a response to deal with a topic. They're used in a kind of opportunistic fashion to prove a particular point. Often there aren't a lot of them used. Um, and that's it. 
So that also brings into question whether you can think about these as being uh, pure halachic texts, even though there are halachic elements um, that are part of it. Um, you might also point to the fact that there, you can think about there being a kind of category error. You might think that this is an area where halacha should be written, um, but in fact, this is, this is not the way halacha is normally written. It's not normally written in terms of we have a general duty to do X, Y, and Z. Uh, usually halacha is written about, you know, you have specific, you have specific obligations, nothing that's general, and maybe nothing relating to the topic of how to treat with sickness. Um, there is a lot more halakhic nuance in questions of observance of Shabbat and observance of kashrut than there are uh, with questions of how to deal with sickness. Those are often less, uh, more vague. Um, so we want to make sure the halakha is not kind of being invoked as this kind of um, grand example which you can just pull things out of but not actually confront, like, not to be too partisan, but halakha shouldn't be used the way that Republicans use, uh, Benj use uh, Ronald Reagan or the way Americans generally use uh, Benjamin Franklin. Like, it's not just a piece of lore that you pull things out of to make your political point in front of a stage, but rather it should be something a little bit more um, thought out and more rigorous, as we said before. Do you think the source is consciously trying to be halacha? Um, <clears throat> I'm not sure. I think, I think it's actually difficult to know with a particular author whether it's trying to be halacha or not. Um, I think that's true especially for Devar Torah, and part of the issue is that a Devar Torah is not normally a setting where we think about is this halachic, is this not halachic, but a lot of the time when social justice halacha is given, it's given in this like Devar yeah. Torah. And actually, you can say that the area of halacha that is most Torah Shabal Peh, is most, halacha, is most oral today, is social justice Torah. Yeah. It's not always written down. So, I think I it's a good question. That, like, I've I've never learned social justice halakha. Like I, in my halakha classes in elementary school and in my year in yeah. Israel, they were all like Shabbat, um, kashrut, and modesty. And none of it was like, this is how practically you interact with other people. And I think that social justice in Judaism is always and this isn't, this is going to sound like a really um, blasphemous um, word, but it's always like relegated to like just, just Torah. Like there aren't, in my experience, I don't have that much halakhic information to pull on anyway, but when it comes to social justice, like everyone pulls from Torah, but it, it doesn't seem like, it's just not taught as much. Mm. It is more the, like, this would be just as they did, so too we should, and it's like a nice suggestion, but not actually what is required of you to like be a Jew. Right. So I think that's, that's really important, and to think about where it is taught, where these sources are taught, and are often in settings where you are not learning the laws of Shabbat and not learning the laws of Kashrut, um, that this becomes a kind of substitute for those things, or is a, a way of engaging in Judaism, often, not always, for people who are not otherwise engaged. Um, that they relate to uh, the Torah through issues of social justice, but not through all those other things. So this, it kind of makes this weird situation where um, the people who are kind of, the rabbis who are most engaged with halakha questions are often not engaged with questions of social justice in the same way. Um, whereas <coughs> it's often kind of lay Jews, if I can use the term, who are the ones who are most invested in questions of social justice. Uh, so it's a kind of popular halakha in that way. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's a kind of separate halakha. And, and that kind of, it can lead to it being derided 
as being like, this isn't really halakha. Like, if you want to do real halakha, like, go open, like, go do dafyomi or something. This is not halakha. This is like your substitute because you're uncomfortable with having halakha demand of you things that you wouldn't want to do already. Or so is sometimes argued. Yeah. Um, I don't know if this is jumping the gut at all, but um, I was just wondering, so what exactly, is what's our motivation in, in trying to, meaning you, essentially the picture I'm getting is that you want to kind of take this overlap idea and turn it to number four, and that would be your ideal. Right. I'm just wondering why exactly, I, like that makes sense to me, but I'm not exactly sure how to articulate Why would that be the ideal? Why do we want to move all of ethics into the Great. purview of halakha? So and is there any danger in that? So some of the, so there's some benefits to it. Um, the dangers are, I think what we're trying to outline now, meaning the dangers are if you present if you use halakhic sources for me, to, to further ends that are not traditional halakhic ends, or in areas where halakha doesn't traditionally go, then it can make halakha itself seem like a kind of mask. And halakha is really just a tool for advocacy, it has no teeth in it, it can take away any sense of obligation. Really, I, the only time I use halakha is to tell me things that I already know or things I already want to do, it just gives me kind of rhetoric. Um, or it can have halakha be cast as kind of not good enough. There are issues in America all the time um, of social policy that require being addressed. Halakha, because it's in Hebrew, because it requires like a certain amount of knowledge, is inevitably going to be slower in dealing with those. And so it's always going to feel one or two steps behind. It's not going to feel specific enough. Um, and so it's going to, it ends up giving halakha a bad, a bad rap. And then the other thing, what I was saying before, is that there's a social element to this, and that there ends up being two communities of people who deal with halakha, people who deal with social justice halakha on the one side, and people who deal with like, the traditional areas of halakha on the other side. <coughs> that, and so that should be bridged as well. Um, so these are some other ones. Uh, okay, so let's kind of leave that, uh, that part for now. Um, just to give you an, like an example of how this might look if it wasn't as much advocacy, so you can see it's not always advocacy, um, is in source number seven, um, Jane Canarak um, wrote a chapter on contracts in this book, The Observant Life, um, where she makes an argument for religious accommodation based on a Mishnah. I thought that was actually a very good argument, um, in a way I think that you can do this properly. The Mishnah, Mishnah Brachot 2.4, provides an early example of the balancing of religious behavior with workplace obligations. Artisans may recite, may recite the Shema at the top of a tree or at the top layer of a stone wall, something that they are not allowed to do when reciting the Amidah prayer. Now, normally that text is used to say, the Amidah is, is more, requires more reverence than the Shema. You have to get down like, off of your normal workplace to say the Amidah, but not the Shema. So she turns this on her head. She says this can be understood not as a text about the relative reverence that you need to give to the Amidah and the Shema, but rather it's about your workplace conditions. When reciting the Shema, a relatively short prayer, workers are not to interrupt their labor for the amount of time it would take them to ascend from the tree <coughs> or building. However, when it comes time to recite the Amidah, they may break from their work for the longer time that it would take them to descend, pray, and reascend. In this short Mishnah, one may discern a clear attempt to balance the demands of religious observance with the exigencies of loyal service to an employer. Neither party enjoys a position of absolute privilege over the other, yet workers are granted the ability to fulfill both obligations, those to their employer as well as those to God. So, I don't know what you think about this. Uh, I found this like quite nice, quite elegant, um, as a way of thinking about the fact that already in the Mishnah there is an understanding. And I don't think I don't think it's unreasonable to say this. The Mishnah recognizes that not every religious obligation requires you to take a day off. 
Um, there are some things that you work around, and there's some things your employer should work around, but both of those exist, and you kind of have to negotiate between the two. Um, so this, I think, is, is a, a less advocacy, a less, uh, um, less of a persuasive essay, more an attempt to make like a, a reasonable reinter reinterpretation of this text. Um, okay, we only have a few minutes left. Um, so let me try to get to the point. We have these texts which have been cropping up, uh, whether you call them social justice halakha, social justice Torah, whatever label you, you put them, you give to them. I want to present a kind of a vision for how to incorporate this into halakha as it has traditionally been, been understood that is beneficial both for the halakha, for the Jewish, for, for the social justice halakha, but also for the traditional areas of halakha. Um, and that is to take extremely seriously the project that is currently happening as being both remarkably creative and also remarkably new. Um, I don't think it's a small thing to say that there are people who are now trying to bring halakha to areas where it has never been formally brought. And where you can really see this is that all of the texts that relate to, say, a question of what, um, in a, uh, what, a, what a workplace should look like, what a restaurant should look like, for example. All of those sources in the Jewish tradition which are scattered around, they've never been even brought together before. There is now an attempt to actually comb through halakhic materials and kind of re-index it to bring it to bear on these social justice questions. So that wouldn't be happening if this was a more established field. Like this is really creating new categories of halakha. As we speak, um, on the last page of the handout, I've given you a, a few links to websites where this is being done. Um, for example, there is a website run by AJWS, ononefoot.org, which basically what they do is they collect halakhic sources on various questions. That's all they do because it's never been done. Um, so because it's never been done, we have to think about this as being a new category of halakha. Um, that means giving it a little bit of leeway because it's a new category of halakha, we shouldn't hold it to the same standards of rigor just yet as other areas of halakha. But more than that, a new, a new part of halakha might mean a new set of rules for relating to the halakha. So to go back to something I talked about last class, the halakhot of sex, the way that the Talmud thinks about sex, is not the way it thinks about Shabbat. It recognizes that you can only legislate sex up until a certain point, and so it often Instead of saying like you know this kind of thing is permitted, this kind of thing is forbidden, it says some, it says things to the effect of, well, here's a curse upon people who do this who have this behavior, or it'll say things like here's a story about a rabbi who suspected two individuals of having an illicit encounter but was wrong, and it uses stories, it uses narrative as opposed to legalistic writing to prove its point. So just like the the way that Shabbat as halacha and the way that sex as halacha can be different so too the way that social justice can be discussed as halakha um, can be different as well. So what are the rules specifically for a social justice halakha? Well, one thing to point out is that people have much more of an intuition about what is right and wrong for questions of social justice in the first place. And that's not, that's not um, a small consideration. People are always going to go into halakha discussions of questions of social justice with some sense of like right and wrong. They're not always gonna agree with each other, but they're gonna have some intuition about it. They'll have some emotional attachment to it often as well. In a way that they might not for a question of, you know, is, you know, peeling is like are, are orange peels on Shabbat muktzah. 
there's probably not so much emotion attached to that. But there is for a question of, you know, for example, questions of immigration policy. Because of that, you don't actually need halakha to be as prescriptive. People already have a sense of commandedness that they apply to social justice halakha. It's already there. And so whereas you need to kind of say for questions of, of sexuality, you know, curse be upon so-and-so who does this and this and this, you don't need to say that for social justice halakha. People already know it's important. Um, that's part of it. Part of it is also, because people have more of an intuition about it, the halakha does not need to be as concrete. It doesn't need to spell out every detail. You don't need hala, you don't need shivot to say, because of this source and that source and that source, therefore vote yes on Proposition 34. Um, I think that's both unrealistic and also doesn't, under, doesn't properly appreciate that social justice halakha has this kind of, is based on this intuition that people have about morality. That's part of what it means. Now, what does it mean that it's a new part of halakha? Part of, the, for, part of what it means to be new is that it requires more creativity. We, I think, expect established areas of halakha to be less creative. We don't expect rabbis who talk about the laws of Shabbat to be as creative in, in their interpretation because there's so much out there. But when you are creating a new field of halakha, you need all kinds of creative measures. And this is why I think you see so much discussion of not just halakha, but halakha mixed with Agadah, mixed with Kabbalah, mixed with all these different fields of halakha, which, sorry, all these different fields of Torah, which you wouldn't see nowadays in other fields. And so actually, I want to argue that whereas in other fields it might be inappropriate to use that kind of creativity when there's well-defined standards of how one makes a halakhic argument, for a new field of halakha, for a new genre of halakha, it is very much allowed and, in fact, should be encouraged. Um, in the same way, and maybe this is going too far, but in the same way that the way that the midrash makes halakhic arguments is not ways that we would. The halakha is much more, the midrash is much more daring in the way that it makes halakhic arguments uh, because it is, in a way, creating new fields of halakha. Social justice halakha should be given the same leeway. Um, and I think we would all benefit from that kind of creativity. And I think you do see that kind of creativity. Just one small example of this um, from my own life. There are areas of halakha which are entirely inactive nowadays, which social justice halakha brings to the fore. So for example, there's all kinds of um, donations that you have to give to a kohen in, uh, in the time when the Beit HaMikdash is standing, when the times when the temple is standing, which are basically defunct nowadays because there's no temple, which are now being reappropriated in social justice halakha to talk about charity. And something that um, I've started to do over the past couple of years is there is a, there's a law called leket. Um, that is, if you own a field and you, uh, in the process of harvesting that field, leave behind a few sheaves of, gra of grain, you shouldn't pick them up. You should leave them and let, uh, let, and, and let a poor person take them. This is obviously unavailable for me. I don't have a field. I don't live in Israel. None of this apply. Um, but for the past few years, I have a personal main hug of, and at the end of the day, whatever change I have in my pocket, I put in a tzedakah box at the end of the day. That's kind of my personal leket. Um, meaning, and it is similar to leket in the sense that it is kind of leaving. I didn't intend to have change in my pocket. Um, and if the amount's large enough, like if I have a $50 bill in my pocket, I'm not gonna put that in the tzedakah box. Um, but it is also charity. I think that um, 
these kinds of creative rereadings are exactly what social justice halacha does very often, um, and that should be encouraged because that's an area of great halacha growth, and a lot of like really amazing um, insight is being is being poured into these kinds of uh, into these kinds of activities. Um, beyond the question of halacha, so I've already talked about it, there, this being a combination of halacha and agadah. Um, I'll say something which is going to sound kind of silly, but it's kind of nice that social justice halakha doesn't is not so obscure. You can actually see the way that it's made an argument. We've kind of come to expect that halakha be a kind of obscure argument where it's very difficult to see exactly what the um, values of the person writing the piece are when they're writing it. So when when a when a rabbi writes a tshuva about an error, you don't expect to to see his kind of hidden motivations, and even he might understand his hidden motivations. But you do see that in the social justice halacha. And in, in fact, when, when we talk about why rabbis in the Talmud, certainly we as um, historically minded individuals, talk about why rabbis in the Gemara made decisions, we do that all the time. Um, so again, this is a product of this being a new area of halacha. I think we can expect that to exist nowadays too. So the advocacy element is just a product of the newness. Lastly, and I think this is important, is that we need to have a great deal of respect for people who conduct social justice halakha, who create this law. Because you really are venturing into new areas of law. Uh, it is much easier in some ways to write a tshuva that says, women can count in a minyan, because you're basically just dealing with existing halakhic sources, than to go and talk about an area of halakha that hasn't been talked about before. So we have to have respect for those individuals um, as being new halakhic decision makers is expanding the palace of Torah, as Tamar Ross uh, and Rav Cook have put it. Um, and the fact that these individuals are also creating all these new avenues for Jews to enter the world of halakha as well. So it needs to be embraced um, as part of a regular Beit Midrash. Now, this has so far just been me um, kind of justifying social justice halakha as it exists today. Uh, but I want to go forward a little bit and make a few recommendations for what social justice halakha could look like in the future to make it even better and more connected to the rest of halakha um, and why we should do so. One is, rigor is incredibly important. Um, yes, creativity is important as well, but eventually it is worthwhile bringing all the available halakha material to, to bear um, because it also makes it something which can enter the Beit Midrash more easily. Um, it makes social justice Torah the same kind of shi'ur that you might have about, you know, a, 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 a piece of Gemara. So that that is one important thing. I think it, it, it lends a legitimate legitimacy as well. But not just that. Um, there are lots of areas of the Torah and of halacha which are incredibly troubling. So like we've talked about before, the fact that the Torah calls homosexual sex a toiva is a problem um, for us it prevents us from seeing the Torah as a source of, of justice, as a source of ethics. So part of this rigor means going back and dealing with all the areas of halakha, which we kind of nicely avoid when we talk, want to talk about workers', rage, workers wages. And it's actually because of this that I think Orthodox Judaism in, in particular is going to have a very hard time advocating for social justice halakha. Because it's very hard to make an argument, for example, that um, Halakhic sources say that prisoners should have certain rights when women and men aren't treated equally in a shul. 
you have to deal with the sources that exist that are already problematic before you move on to other pastures. Um, that's incredibly important. Um, going back to something that Eliana was saying, it has to be taught in schools, it has to be part of regular curricula, it can't be something that's learned separately in some other form. Um, and then finally, and I think this is the most promising element, I think it's possible that social justice halakha is actually a kind of missing link between halakha as it exists today and theology. Um, a lot of us have difficulty with thinking about God, of trying to think of ways that we can think about God that are meaningful, uh, that we connect to. However, we have a much easier time thinking about what it means to do right in the world, to do good in the world. And very often, the sources in halakha that we find that are related to justice talk about what it means in relation to God. There's actually something that social justice does well in relation to Kabbalah. Um, that Kabbalistic sources very often talk about what does it mean to know God? It means to know God's goodness. Um, if you actually look at the last source that I've given you on this handout, page number nine, the Tomer Dvorah, uh, 16th century author Moshe Cordovero wrote, um, it is proper for man to imitate his creator, resembling him in both likeness and image according to the secret of the supernatural form. What does that mean? Because the chief super, supernal image and likeness is in deeds, a human resemblance merely in body, bodily appearance and not in deeds debases that form. So what does it mean to be like God? To do what God does. And just like we know that God is full of uh, mercy and compassion, therefore we too have to be full of mercy and compassion. And so in a way that other areas of halakhad cannot access these very primal thoughts about God, social justice Torah really can. Um, and so I think the promise that you have in social justice halakha is actually it's possible to bridge this gap between th theology and halakha and make it so that we have instead a spectrum from theology to halakha where there are areas of halakhic discourse and Jewish discourse and, uh, that is more theologically minded, not so prescriptive, uh, not so down to earth. There are areas which are very much down to earth, are all about you know, eating, about whether orange pills or muktzah on Shabbat, which have very little to do with theology, but there are lots of areas in the middle. And so social justice halakha is actually kind of a, can be a keystone um, in the future, especially for those of us who have difficulty relating to God in kind of making a link between the way we think about halakha um, and the way we think about God. Um, and so this, I think, I'm going to end there as a nice segue into next week's conversation, which is halakha and theology.